2: We are so lucky to have Mike Mayo with us. Uh, you probably have heard of him, you've read his notes. Uh, 30 years in the banking and analyzing business places, Deutsche Bank, Prudential, CSFB, CL- CLSA. Uh, currently he is at Wells Fargo as a senior analyst joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Mike, you moved markets yesterday, single-handedly. You made bank stocks go up because you said, perhaps they're ready to party like 1995.
3: Why? Well, we think bank stocks could be ready to party like 1995. 1995 was the start of the best performance of bank stocks in modern history. And let's take us back to 1995. That's when you had uh, Paisley Ties, Forrest Gump won the movie uh, Academy Award Best Picture, uh, we had Bill Clinton, Boris Yeltsin. Boop, 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 boop. That's our time machine. And <laughs> Bruce we,
2: Springsteen came oh, out yeah, with the go. Ghost of Tom Jones." <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> Always a Springsteen reference. All and, right, so banks. And Don't forget about the bank stocks okay, then; we and won't they did about really, the bank really stocks. well. And look, back then, like today, you had efficiency improving to new levels. Then it was from the threat of takeover. Today, it's technology, um, digital banking, and AI, and cloud, and blockchain, and all that. It's really paying off. The other parallel would be deregulation remember actually bill clinton led some deregulation for the banks don't forget that today it's streamlining from the regulation that's already in place oh and also it was the end of a fed tightening cycle just like today regardless of whether the fed cuts rates or not it's the end of the fed tightening i think we can all agree on that so you have some parallels there in addition the bank stock valuations are cheaper today, and in addition, as opposed to the 1990s when you had to worry about what bank was going to pay what price for what target, today banks are returning record amounts of capital, and you have a major industry event this month. That is the Fed stress test, and approvals for banks to return capital so there's a lot going on in the bank space and there's still a lot of recency bias i say recency bias from the financial crisis everyone's like "Uh uh-oh banks are going to blow up i'd call that healthy paranoia the more everybody's concerned about banks blowing up the less likely it is to occur so this is a very good time for the bank stocks
1: so mike how about just in terms of the returns that the big banks can generate today i have investors really ratcheted down their expectations given the regulatory Overhang that's been put on upon the banks after the financial crisis, the days of fifteen or twenty percent ROEs. Investors say, "Okay, I know I'm not going to get that, but let's reset from here."
3: Well, what we did in our report, we said, "What would the bank returns be if banks, you know, had the same?" leveraged as they had before the financial crisis and in a couple years we think on an apples to apples basis banks will have the best returns in history again hmm. after adjusting for leverage but absolutely investors and the stock market and the public has reduced their expectations for banks that's why they're so inexpensive citigroup's trading at tangible book value that historically other than the financial crisis that was a recession price so you have a recession price without a recession so you're pricing in a lot of you know pessimism
2: Okay, so let's talk about some of the pessimism. Yield curve, flattening, depending on what you look at, inverted. Inverted for day 10, which is ringing alarm bells in some places if you look at the three-month, 10-year gap. Why is this not a problem?
3: Well, that's not ideal. All else equal, you have a rate headwind to the banks, but it's a matter of degree. So if the Fed were to cut 25 or 50 basis points, some banks' earnings could be hurt by 1%. On the other hand, a reduction in interest rates is really good for credit quality. It could help a more risk on attitude. It could help fixed income activities. And you have to look at the offsets. And a steeper yield curve would also be pretty good for the bank. So we feel pretty good with uh, where we are.
2: Second pessimistic thought. We are getting to the end of this credit cycle, which would be basically an idea that would be legitimized by the Fed cutting rates. We're seeing loan losses pick up consumers and corporate. Why is that not gonna be a problem for the banks?
3: Uh, so you're contributing to that healthy pessimism.
2: Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> well, come <Is> on, <laughs> I wanna hear what the responses are, because this is these are the arguments that people are putting out there.
3: No, I think it's fair. Look, credit losses are going higher. For the largest banks, we have credit losses almost doubling over the next four years. That's not new news. In fact, if we're wrong, it might be because credit losses don't go up as much as we expect. Oh, and by the way, newsflash, in a low rate environment, it's easier for people to pay their bills. Another. Very important point. There are issues out there. Certainly a lot of people are talking about leverage lending and activities by private equity firms, BDCs, REITs, the non-bank financial players. That's the talk of the town. That's the chatter. But as, when it comes to the banks themselves, they've gotten a lot more religion. The boards are asking questions. Every time somebody hiccups, everybody says, are you okay? It's like a regulatory SWAT team swoops in. So I say thank you, regulators, because regulators – as opposed to before the financial crisis, now they give you a little bit extra confidence that banks are not going to blow up. There'll be blowups, but it's less likely that it'll be the banks, even though loan losses are going higher. How
1: about the capital markets business? We've seen you know, a really rocky fourth quarter for the big banks in terms of their capital markets deaths. Uh Not that much better in the first quarter. What's going on there? They lost their touch, or is it just the... Lack of volatility. I mean, sometimes when you got volatility, they say it's the wrong kind of volatility. Uh, can that be a driver of earnings for the banks?
3: Yeah, I always love that one. Like when things aren't going well, that's bad volatility. When things are going well, it's good volatility. Right. Right. So um, look, you've not recovered in the trading businesses the last few years like you might have had expected. Um, look, uh, some banks recently have guided that you know their capital markets activities won't be that strong in the second quarter. Um, so to the extent that um you get kind of good volatility back or you have a lot of you know chatter in the markets generally whether it's you know trade with mexico or china or brexit and a lot of activities so we've yet to break up but i would say in our earnings models we're not expecting much growth so i think the market's kind of priced that out if it were to happen it'd be a, a kind of a call option on the upside
2: all right so mike you highlighted citigroup followed by Bank of America and then JP Morgan Chase as your top trades uh, within this bullish bank stock call are there any banks left out
3: you know I this is a twenty five year structural breakout for the benefits of scale in nineteen ninety four you um, national banking in the U.S. was permitted for the first time. It didn't work out so well for 25 years. You had a financial crisis, regulatory change, systems issues, but now the largest banks are capitalizing on being national banks. I mean, going back then, I used to have to get traveler's checks if I was going to California, right? Like it's, and you'd have to switch banks. You're going to college. You're moving homes. You have to. Now you can have a bank for life. The concern, though, who could be left out? as scale's making more of a difference than ever before, especially with technology and marketing, who's left out? It would be the smaller banks. So the biggest question that comes up um, more than ever before is the smaller banks, at what point could they have franchise erosion? Now look, a lot of small banks have very good service, they have you know, certain select businesses, they can perform well. So as an individual basis, you can find some good ones, but as a group, uh, you start to wonder, it's like the, the corner deli when uh, you know, one of the uh, the big uh, help, help me out here in New York. Who are the CVS uh, no, or, well, or, or
2: or even um, Fairway?
3: Thank you. There you where, go. Where, where do you live? You, you, could, you, could, you could tell I don't do the shopping in my family. Oh so, my gosh. Uh,
2: well, uh, <laughs> well, I'll I'll t- I'll, t- I'll teach you about about the stores. <laughs> um, really interesting. I mean, one one question that I have uh, just going forward is, you know, are we then going to see consolidation, and how long is this sort of secular bull market going to last?
3: Well, we thought you'd see more consolidation already. I mean, BB and SunTrust, uh, we we like that merger. It's big overlap, two banks in the southeast, uh, really getting a lot of synergies. So that was good. And uh, once we saw that, I mean, what does that say about banks? You know, number ten through five thousand, if they have enough scale, if these two banks, you know, had to merge, so there's a big question. We haven't seen it, and I think the problem is there's more you know, buyers and sellers, everybody, every bank wants to go ahead and buy. So the other issue is with a change in political administration, it might not be as easy to merge depending on what plays out in the 2020 presidential election. So if you're a bank management and you, you want to pursue a bank merger merge now, otherwise it might not be so easy later on.
1: Mike Mayo, thank you so much for joining us. Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo Securities Senior Annals, covering the banks with his note about how it might be the time to buy banks right here. Well, amid rising trade tensions, the S&P 500 is down about 4% from its recent high, but it's still up about 12% for the year. To get a sense of where we go from here, we welcome our next guest, Ken Fisher. Ken is founder, executive chairman, and co-CIO of Fisher Investments, about $107 billion under management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Um, talk just a little bit about that volatility we've seen recently. How, how do you factor into your outlook what appear to be rising trade tensions with some of our biggest partners, China, Mexico, maybe India, how does that factor into your outlook?
4: So what I tend to always wanna think about is current perceptions versus future realities. And I'm always trying to measure sentiment versus what I think is the scale or measurable size of a good or a bad ahead. And so when I think about all this, I just, for example, in the trade war issue which is really tariffs in a different way you just total up all the tariffs that might be applied you remember that they're not all going to get applied then you actually remember that there's going to be some substitution that i buy this instead of that so i don't get that higher price and then when you think about that you say how big is that compared to gdp and you can actually total them all up nobody ever does that but the scale is you know about If they were all applied and there was no substitution effect at all, still about 1% of global GDP growth. So 1% of global GDP, excuse me, about a third of a normal year's GDP growth with no inflation. If there's some inflation, it'd be even less. So the impact of that is smaller than people think it is. It's big fear over a relatively small negative, and big fear over a relatively small negative still fits within the framework of a positive. It's easier to see that big fear of a false factor is bullish, but big fear of a little negative is also bullish.
2: So you like US stocks here?
4: Uh, so there's a big feature going on that nobody notices that helps US stock, which is that right now I can borrow money in Europe short term at basically zero, and I can lend it to my own firm in America and then turn around and lend it back out short term with a currency hedge, and I got a 2.5% hole I can drive a truck through, and if I can do that, so can every major bank and every major global corporation in the world, and they are, and people don't seem to notice that. We're getting funded by Europe and Japan right now at a huge rate, and nobody talks about that. It's the reason why in a world where our relatively flat yield curve, America's relatively flat yield curve, that everybody squawks about, squawk, squawk,
2: squawk, squawk, squawk. Including me, that's me. Is is in
4: fact, in parallel with a perfectly reasonable growth in the quantity of money. Because the banks are still lending because they're able to get funded out of Europe and Japan, and nobody really thinks about that. You, you don't think that City or JP Morgan or 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 knows how to borrow in their European operations and lend out in America? Ah.
1: <laughs> so are we long buying oh, yeah. big banks?
4: Oh uh, I wouldn't focus too much singularly on banks because banks typically are late cycle laggards. They're really not growth companies, but the reality is this is, is an argument for America. It's America's getting funded and people don't even notice it's getting funded. Nobody talks about that. Anything that's big that people don't talk about, to me that's important. Uh, the 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 fundamental I got reasons to be optimistic about Europe in a different way that nobody talks about, but the reality of what's going on is that people are afraid of that yield curve, and yet it's really the global yield curve that matters today, not the U.S. yield curve or, or any other single country's yield curve because of the ability to borrow in one place and lend in another.
2: I think that one reason why people don't talk about that is because it sounds relatively simple to you, but it, it's it, there, there is another way of saying that, which is this is the reason why yields have stayed so low in the United States because there is a sort of divergence in this sort of relative, uh, relative game that's being played with Europe and Always. the U.S. Right. Always. But but, but
4: then but then let's play that a different way, because I can hear nearly endless chatter about what should the Fed do? What will the Fed do? What's going on with the Fed? Fed Fed, of which I'm largely fed up. And the fact (laughs) of the matter is the fact of the matter is that let's say that contrary to everyone's expectations, which I don't expect, the Fed raised rates right now. Right. What would that do? That would accelerate borrowing from overseas into America. But if you think about them reducing rates right now, if they were to do that, which I also don't expect them to do, but if they did, that would reduce the spread that would motivate folks to be borrowing overseas and lending into America. So in that regard, you could say simply, which I've always believed that the Fed is less important than people think it is. That's not to say it's not important, but it's less important than people think it is. But
2: what happens if there's a major move in the dollar? I mean, does that disrupt some of these changes? If there's a big move... I
4: agree with that. But let's just go back to a crisis. Every darn crisis you've ever seen in history, no real exceptions, the dollar goes up, not down. And the fact is, uh, what has been happening as we've gone through this year, the dollar's been strong. Why has the dollar been strong? Because money's been flowing from those other places into here.
1: You mentioned Europe uh, as some place that you might have an interest. Why would that be? It seems like there's generally weakening economies there, uncertainty of Brexit. What draws your attention to Europe?
4: Uh, about 17 things from Sunday, but let me start off with just a couple of more important ones. Good. Uh, since we don't, have the wine, now, the because we don't have between now and Sunday. Okay. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the, the fact is, A, let me go back to America for a second. Third years of president's terms have been positive 91% of history since the 1920s. Because the midterm elections give us gridlock, governments become inactive, and what's otherwise the moving obstacle course of regulatory and legislative change turns into a stationary obstacle course and businesses become more willing to take risks as they can maneuver around the stationary obstacles or the more stationary obstacles relative to the prior moving ones. We have a similar thing going on in Europe that people don't get in two ways. One is that parliaments across Europe have had their ideological spectrums completely pancaked out like a bell curve, pushed down in the middle, out on the edges, and coalitions agree on almost nothing. There's almost complete gridlock politically across all of Western Europe. Secondarily, just like American elections, their elections they just had a few weeks ago, actually not even a few, we've had eight of before the history of the aftermath of those elections in the next 12 months is overwhelmingly positive. Only once it was negative, the very first one, and it was only negative 2.6%. On average, they're positive 11% in the next 12 months because you get that same feature, which is that people fear, just like they feared, what if those crazy populists take everything over and then in fact, the fears of the election end up being less bad than people feared and you get a more stable world. And in the more stable world, Markets like that better than they expected. Expectations versus reality is always the game. And I expect both of those two political features to play in Europe. Then the final point: just look last night. Yeah. PMIs across Europe came up better than expected in almost every single country. Almost every single one. And particularly, people focus on negatives in manufacturing yeah. PMIs when they don't focus on the positives in services PMIs, and yet services is three times the size of manufacturing across Europe.
2: Ken Fisher, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there, although I'm going to have to lobby uh, from here till Sunday for the next time, because it's fabulous having you on. Ken Fisher, founder, executive chairman, and co-chief investment officer of Fisher Investments with $107 billion of assets under management.
1: M&A deal volume is down in 2019 versus last year. Trade tensions certainly cannot be helping. To get a sense of what's going on in the global M&A space, we're very fortunate to have Mark Schaefer here. Mark is co-head of Global Mergers and Acquisitions at Citi. Uh, he joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and he's, I think, he's speaking at the Bloomberg Invest Conference. Is that We, we correct? just we just did a panel, yes. Okay, so what was your panel? It was on. <laughs> it was an M&A panel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it
2: wasn't on, you know, politics.
1: No, it was not on politics. <laughs> yeah, so, so, I mean, what's, so I guess trade volumes, M&A volumes are down this year. What's kind of the, the tone of the market? What are you seeing the drivers here?
5: So it's it's interesting, because it's sort of a thin market, right? I'll give you the good, the bad, and the ugly, okay. right? The good is, on the positive side, it's the fourth fastest start in history. Second fastest start since the financial crisis. But that sort of, uh, when you get to the bad, it's a, it's a thin or a narrow market in the sense of a couple of things. One is it's regionally very skewed to the US, and the volumes in Asia and Europe are way down, you know, 35%-ish. The US is down about 11. It's also narrow from an industry perspective. The only industries that are up this year are tech, industrial, and energy. And the other piece of it that's a little bit daunting is that it's um, very skewed to the mega deals. 20 billion and up are sort of at record levels. The one to five billion, which we call a sweet spot, are way down about 30% in the number of deals. The ugly is the macro environment, geopolitical environment appears to be worsening. So from a second half perspective, that does give us some pause for concern.
2: So what about, what happened to healthcare? Weren't we going to see this wave of consolidation that was going to create these uh, incredible, get your pharmacy supplies, get your beauty, get your doctor and get a CAT scan kind of places?
5: Look, we, you know, it, it started that way. I mean, it's, uh, and if you look at, actually with the U.S., it's tech and healthcare have driven the volumes. But, you know, Celgene was obviously a big part of that. We were fortunate enough to be in that. Um, I, I, I agree with you. It's sort of, it, 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 we were expecting more. We haven't quite seen as much. it be interesting to see how it, how it plays out the rest of the year and in, into next year.
1: How about, I mean, when you look at the pipeline or, or the deals to date, give us a sense of kind of, how much are strategic buyers coming in uh, making strategic acquisitions as opposed to some of the financial deals driven by the you know LBO shops or private equity. Sure,
5: look, I mean it's it's still largely been a strategic market, um, and, and that's that's obviously has been, been driven this market over the last several years. But what is interesting um, in the in the last three months, we've seen in each month twenty billion dollar plus financial sponsored transactions, which is up. So more of a shift to the buy side for quite a couple of years. For a number of years, uh, there was a lot of monetizations going on. And now we're seeing more of a shift to the buy side. As valuations come down, you would expect that. And particularly if it's a secular shift where people believe it's a reset, that'll make it, um, you know, that, that, that'll make uh, leverage transactions more affordable.
2: So I'm I'm interested in sort of what is causing the slowdown, especially because financing is still cheap. Yeah. Uh, depending on whether you go to the loan side or the high bond side, it's pretty cheap. And then, of course, in the corporate credit, I have to think about regulators, and we just had the story this week about antitrust uh, regulators looking into big tech. How much is that a huge dampening factor on M&A right now? Look,
5: you know, unequivocally, it, it's had an impact. I mean, the, the you know the, the the issues are it's it's much now. It's much harder. I would say under the previous administration, from an antitrust perspective, if you were in a certain set of parameters, you you, you got pretty good advice. You could probably get it done. It's much harder in this administration, particularly with the emphasis in antitrust on structural remedies. Um, but I do think it's had a... And, and the other piece of it that's really matter, matters is it's just length... Anything that's close to the line, the deal duration, as it were, has lengthened to as much as two years. Very, very difficult to be in... Basically, on an agreed deal basis, have to wait two years to close it. It changes your forecasts. It impacts, you know, the ability to retain employees. So, yes, it's, it's clearly had an impact, but I, I don't think that's the sole... You know, sort of, sort of uh, rationale here. Part of it is, listen, we've got a more challenging environment. Arguably, there's talk about is it the end of the cycle? Is it the end of the equity cycle? Um, with the China trade situation looking like it's worsening, it could very well be. You know, you got fragmented politics in Europe, so it's a, you know, it, it's it's a more daunting environment. I think a number of these factors have gotten into it, but the fact of the matter is, we're still seeing very big deals get done. So you can argue it's still a risk-on market.
1: Well, the good news, I guess, for City, I'm looking at the Ma Go function on the Bloomberg Terminal. Cities, uh, we have a year-to-date ranked third uh, behind J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. So you guys are performing well relative to your peers. But when you th- when you sit down with CEOs and boards, I would guess just in the last couple of months, how much of the trade tensions, the rhetoric, the uncertainty of global trade is that factoring into their appetite? to think maybe strategic action. Uh,
5: look, I think it's an increasing function. I mean, to be, to be candid, I think that, um, as I said, it's still a bit of a risk on market, something that is, becomes actionable. It's been very high on a priority list for a number of years that is going to be taken off the table, the scarce real estate argument. Um, I think they're still getting done. But I do think that as the perception is now that this, the, you know, the trade dispute with China could lengthen, that could have impact on growth, and growth is a big driver. You know, GDP growth is a big driver. In a solid economy, M&A does well. In a, in a, in a tougher economy, M&A doesn't do as well. So I am seeing it increasingly uh, creep into the discussion about Is Should we do something material now?
2: Talking about sort of some of these trade tensions, what about cross-border deals?
5: You know, they're at, by our data, they're at the lowest, the first five months of the year on a year-to-date basis, the lowest we have in our database. It's only about 23% of the volumes, it's typically 30 or, or higher.
2: How far back does your database and go? And this goes back
5: to 2000, at least. I, I, I don't know if we go back into the 90s or even further, but it's, it, it's, it's really, really underscores that it's become a sort of a regional market, as it were, uh, and that you know, a more mercantile world that we live in is having an impact. Now, there are still some places where it's getting done. I mean, 23% of a market is still, it's not insignificant,
1: but it's way down relative to what it's been. So Mark, managing your business, it all comes down to talent. Tell us about, you know, the says marketplace that the, to the, says the, the former, former investment banker. banker. Yeah. Okay, let's just it be all comes transparent. Down to talent. Come on. It's not the seat; it's the person. I guess we're not that talented. No, I, I, I want to become a radio guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, how is it retaining uh, or attracting and retaining talent? I know a lot of the kids are all going out to Silicon Valley to tech technology mm-hmm. companies, and then private equity and venture capitals out, out there. How about for the traditional investment banking track, M and track? What's the market like?
5: Yeah, look, it, it's I mean it's a very competitive world. I mean uh, unequivocally. And um, but you know I'd say we're we see great talent. We see it you know at, at the coming out of the universities. We see it coming out of the business schools. We get you know laterals. But you know make no mistake about it. I mean there are a lot of options for you know for very talented individuals. You know, whether it be you know so sort of the hedge fund world, private equity, Silicon Valley, entrepreneurship. Uh, But we think we do pretty well. Um, We're very happy with uh, what we have. And, you know, I think that, you know, I would argue that there was a period a few years ago post the crisis that banking might have been a little out of favor. I think that's shifting, particularly for the U.S. banks, you know, just given the fact that we, you know, are now in in a, you know, in a very strong position from a capital perspective and otherwise.
2: So uh, right now, just sort of talking about where we expect deal volume to actually be, should it pick up in the second half. Uh, And I'm wondering, oil prices now at the lowest uh, since the end of January. And we did see, uh, actually, you know, we didn't see as much consolidation as people had expected after the big debacle with oil prices plunging uh, and and a lot of companies went bankrupt. Are you expecting a new wave of consolidation in the oil and gas sector?
5: Well, you know, but post-Oxy, which we were involved in, um, you would think that there would be you know, an impetus to, to some more consolidation. The question is, you know, will it, will it play? Because the competing factor is you've got a, you know, arguably, you know, sort of an economic environment that, could, that is worsening. And to the extent that happens, you know, like that people go to a risk-off sort of mentality. But you would think that in energy, uh, particularly in the upstream, you know, there, there are a lot of logical potential combinations uh, you know but like anything else you have to it takes both buyer and seller to get together on these things
2: which is probably the reason why we didn't see more deals getting done uh, back in 2015 2016 I remember everyone was expecting that and instead uh, we just saw bankruptcies and restructurings Mark Schaefer thank you so much for joining us thank wonderful having you very much. here appreciate it uh, Mark Schaefer is co-head of global mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup.
1: Well, first it was China, then Mexico, uh, perhaps now India, maybe even Cuba. Uh, trade tensions between the U.S. and some of its biggest partners are escalating to get a sense of what this means for the global economy. Uh, we welcome Brad Setzer. Uh, Brad is the Stephen A. Tannenbaum, Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Brad, thanks so much for being with us. Let's start with China, just I mean, that's probably just the most developed story, I guess, if you will. And we've had you know, negotiators going back and forth, but tariffs are going back and forth. Where do we stand now? And how do you think this might play out? So, I guess at this stage, my baseline
6: is that uh, Trump will carry out his threat to put tariffs at 25% on all trade, all imports. Uh, From China. Right now, we've raised tariffs on 250 billion to 25 percent, and there's about 300 billion of trade left to tariff, mostly electronics, mostly clothes. Uh, Most of the industrial inputs have already been tariffed.
2: So given your experience, and you have extensive experience with even the Treasury Department analyzing the economic impact of things like tariffs, what will the fallout be from that base case in terms of economic uh, slowdown or uh, points off the GDP for both the U.S. and China?
6: Well, the impact is somewhat larger on China. Uh, I would put the a base estimate for the overall impact of the full ensemble of tariffs, so not the incremental effect on the U.S. at about a half point of GDP. Just, you know, you're, we're paying more for imports. There's less money in the economy to buy uh, other things. Uh, and then the impact on China, because trade is more important to the Chinese economy, is probably twice that. So about a point. That assumes no policy response. And I think, you know, the market, certainly the bond market is increasingly anticipating that the Fed will try to
1: offset some of the impact. Chinese policymakers will certainly try to offset some of the impact. What is your sense of, uh, you know, do you have a baseline case on kind of how you think this might play out? Do we get an agreement? When do we get an agreement? What is your thoughts? What are your thoughts there?
6: Well, right now, there isn't an active negotiation between the U.S. and China. That negotiation broke down about a month ago when the president tweeted uh, that China was walking back their offer and threatened and then carried out the threat to raise tariffs uh, from 10 to 25 on 200 billion. The president and uh, President Xi will have a chance to meet in Japan at the end of June at the G20. Uh, they could agree on a new negotiating process, and likely in that case, they would agree, the president would agree to defer the tariffs on the further $300 Maybe China would agree to some goodwill gestures, and they would go back to the negotiating table. But I don't at this stage see a scenario where they would reach agreement in June to walk back the existing tariffs.
2: Before we shift to North America, because the uh, trade tariff tension is picking up here, uh, I'm wondering who is the beneficiary, if there are any beneficiaries, of the trade dispute between the U.S. and China?
6: Well, uh, the biggest beneficiaries to date have been other Asian economies, which can substitute for Chinese production, so there's been a big pickup in imports from Vietnam, for example. Over time, you would expect to see a broader set of beneficiaries as supply chains adjust. One of the biggest potential beneficiaries, you know, to pivot to North America is Mexico, but it's a little hard to make a decision to orient your supply chain uh, away from China and towards Mexico if you're anticipating tariffs on Mexico too.
1: So it seems like it. it- Initially, it was just the U.S. and China, and you could see some of the longstanding issues here, but the Trump administration seems to be expanding their tariffs, expanding their, um, you know, their, their commerce policy to Mexico for other reasons, maybe for, to India, maybe to maybe other parts of Europe. What do you think the strategy is of this White House?
6: You know, when you said Trump administration, I immediately thought, "Well, we're really just talking about President Trump." Okay. Uh, president Trump seems to like tariffs, and I, I don't think it's more complicated than that. Uh, there's been abundant reporting by every major news outlet that the bulk of the administration, including the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer, were opposed to the use of the latest tariff threat against Mexico. This is the president, and for now, the president likes tariffs.
2: So, but. One thing that I find interesting is that China is the world's second largest economy, and yet the way that markets seem to be responding is much more severely to the threat of Mexico tariffs uh, on the U.S. economy than tariffs on China and the effect on the U.S. economy. So, given your history and experience doing economic analyses of tariffs and trade issues, how much more of an impact would the the sort of threatened tariffs on Mexico have on the U.S. economy?
6: I think there's probably three important points to make here. Uh, The first is that if you sum up imports from Mexico and auto imports, which the president is is threatening uh, from Europe and Japan and Canada, you get a total of about 500 billion. So it's roughly equal in size to current imports from China. Uh, If you look at exports, uh, the US actually exports proportionally more to Mexico and to Europe than it does to China, so the opportunities on the other side for retaliation are stronger. But I think the third and probably most important point is that the president, uh, his threats against China emerged out of a, uh, a standard, you might say, trade process, a 301 complaint uh, that was derived from longstanding concerns about Chinese commercial practices. The threat against Mexico materialized out of the blue it exerts presidential authority uh, for national security emergencies and tries to use that authority to essentially raise tariffs in a week uh, at the whim of the president uh, in a way that hasn't been done before. So when the market has to sort of suddenly factor in uh, the increased uncertainty as well as the direct threat.
2: So in other words, it was maybe perhaps not that the economic impact would be that much more on the Mexico tariffs, but that it had not been priced into the market in any way. Is that accurate? I I
6: think two weeks ago, the baseline assumption was that uh, there was going to be a fight about ratification of USMCA, but there weren't going to be tariffs on Mexico. Uh, Obviously, that baseline assumption has been... uh, uh, overturned
1: guacamole tequila (laughs) corona i mean some big issues for the economy (laughs)
2: <laughs> I thought you were I mean, say, the, the really big, big one a from, you know, set
6: aside the avocado issue and the Corona issue, uh, the big one is auto parts yeah, and the auto supply it's chain. It's, yeah.
2: Absolutely. Brad Setzer, thank you so much for being here. Always fantastic to have your perspective. Brad Setzer uh, is the Stephen A. Tannenbaum Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council of Foreign Relations. He's also a senior advisor at Exante Data. He also, just to give you a sense, uh, served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Economic Analysis in the U.S. Treasury Department. From 2011 to 2015.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney.
2: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.